I think the problem Democrats have is that they view everybody as their subgroup mm -hmm. and they're not very precise about what the subgroups are. So you are Latino, you are black. And if you're part of a subgroup, they've stopped even trying to persuade you anymore. Welcome to the Lost Debate Special Election Edition. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Corey Bradford. Corey, a lot of elections to unpack last night. Where are we going to start? It was a busy night. We're going to start things off in Virginia. Republican Glenn Youngkin is projected to win the race for governor of Virginia after a heated campaign. This was a huge upset for the Democrats. They kind of thought they had this one in the bag. The polling data was showing it was getting kind of close towards the end. And it looks like Glenn Youngkin, the Republican nominee, really pulled things off right now. 50.7% or roughly. Uh, pretty much everybody's calling it for Youngkin. Uh, I mean, this was a huge upset. I mean, is this related to Biden's performance as president? Because that's what a lot of people are going to reduce this to. Well, full disclosure for our audience, I was very involved in the 2017 elections in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And I, I founded this organization and ran it that uh, provided a ton of staffing support and donations to Virginia Democrats. Uh, so I've been in the middle of this. And so I was part of that last wave yeah. of Democrats. 2017, won. yeah. And uh, and this time I'm watching mostly as a spectator. And I think that this is a super important uh, national story. And I know Democrats around the country are going to try to minimize this, but it's impossible to minimize such a huge swing, Corey. I think there has to be soul searching after this. Absolutely. I mean, Democrats have won uh, the gubernatorial race there every year since, I think, 2013. Like it's been, since, it's been since 2009, since the last time a Republican won there. So this is a huge loss for the Democrats. I think a lot of it comes down to just um, the education stuff. I think that that played a really large role because Youngkin as a Republican he tried very hard to run as a moderate, right? Like he didn't go full Trump, but at the same time, he didn't deny Trump either. Like he definitely, you know, he made comments about election security, election integrity, but at the same time, he didn't push the big lie. Yep. So he kind of had to walk that very fine line between Trumpism and still being a sort of kind of electable Republican in Virginia. And he did a pretty decent job at it. And I think McAuliffe just wasn't able to sell himself as to why he deserved another time or another term, I should say, as governor. Well, this is where I think Democrats are very vulnerable vulnerable. As somebody who both has worked and helped elect a lot of Democrats, but also somebody who's run schools, mm -hmm. this education argument that the Republicans are making is very potent. And a lot of people are trying to dismiss it as racism. Mm -hmm. And there definitely are elements of the Republican Party that make racist arguments about schools. I would also say, by the way, there are elements of the left that make racist elements about schools, which we can get to. But the Democratic position on education for ever since the Obama administration, after the Obama administration, has been we're going to increase funding. We're not going to tell you how we're going to pay for anything. We're going to decrease accountability. We're going to decrease school choice and we're going to protect unions at all costs. And when that's your education platform, parents are going to look elsewhere. And right now they're they're flirting with the, Dem the Republican Party. And yeah. what would be really dangerous for Democrats is if it's not just suburbanites, but urban voters as well. If they start to buy into the Republican school choice argument, then it's lights out for Democrats. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing that really played a large role here in Virginia was the Latino vote, right? Because Youngkin, actually, as a Republican, he made some serious gains with Latinos. We'll have to go through the actual data when it all comes through. But he did a lot of outreach to the Latino community. He was very respectful with that outreach. Whereas on the other hand, you had McAuliffe, who, I mean, there's a video of him on Twitter basically talking to Latino voters saying, hey, you guys need to get busy and get your population numbers up so we can have more voters. It was just so dismissive. And I think it's, it kind of reminds me of when Joe Biden made the statement of uh, if you vote Republican, you ain't black. It's like when Democrats make these sort of kind of 
like, you know, stereotypical, you know, some of them even downright racist statements, they kind of get a pass for it. Right. But then if a Republican was to say anything close to that, they get labeled the biggest racist in the room. Right. And so it seems interesting that, you know, McAuliffe tried to do this little outreach with Latinos that didn't really work, whereas Youngkin's outreach was much more successful. Not to mention Youngkin also tried to link McAuliffe to that more socialist brand of Democrats, even though there's nothing really socialist about McAuliffe. You know, because that socialism exists in the Democratic Party, Youngkin was really trying to tie him to that. and, And there's an argument to say that that worked. Right. I think the problem Democrats have is that they view everybody as their subgroup mm-hmm. and they're not very precise about what the subgroups are. So you are Latino, you are black, mm-hmm. and that is how Democrats view you. And if they, and if you're part of a subgroup that they count on, they've stopped even trying to persuade you anymore. Uh, and often they sell out your interests to the more elite interests of the party on issues like education, on you know flirtation with things like socialism, which are not very popular within black and brown communities by and large, with flirtation with issues like defund the police. Yeah. And I think when one party is treating uh, communities of color like a turnout mechanism and the other party is actually trying to persuade them, even if they have a lot of racist elements within their party, yeah. what we've learned is that if some people are going to be persuaded. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, stepping away from Virginia for a little bit, look at New Jersey. I mean, this should have been an easy win for Phil Murphy. I mean, he should have been able to just cruise to a win. And now, I mean, that election hasn't even been fully called, but it looks like he's like ahead by like a 0.5%. Like, it's, he, I mean, the margin of error there is so slim. And why, you know, does that go back to your argument about school choice? Because I know that's something that uh, Chitterelli, the Republican nominee there, he was talking big about charter schools and how there have been no new charter schools in New Jersey under Murphy. Does that get back to that argument about school choice and how that's really resonating with voters? Yeah, it at least it was a viral moment. Like in the in the debates, Chitterelli pushed Murphy. And it to me, I'm not sure if the actual charter school argument motivated voters, but the lack of a democratic vision on education in that yeah. moment, basically what Chitterelli did was he pushed Murphy in the debates because Murphy was like, I'm for equity. I'm basically for black people. Yeah. And then Chitterelli was like, well, black and brown communities support charter schools, but you're not approving any new charters, even though they're really good in New Jersey. And basically Murphy had no answer. He was just a platitude machine. Yeah. And so do I think, you know, the voters of Newark, for example, who mm-hmm. um, have some of the best charter schools in the country voted overwhelmingly for Chitterelli? No. Mm-hmm. Do I think they were very motivated to vote for Murphy? Probably not. Yeah. But the big question is, can the Republican Party take this argument about school choice for suburban Mm -hmm. voters, which is essentially the CRT argument, but it involves other things, by Mm -hmm. the way. And I think that uh, I almost wanted to put an addendum to the CRT explainer I did last week and say there is, I mentioned how there's this thing lumped in with CRT, critical race theory, that is attacks on accelerated learning, advanced placement courses, using data to drive instruction, And that's where this is a potent argument. Yeah, it just seems like the semantics that the Democratic Party trades in really hurts them more than anything else. You know, for instance, like critical race theory is something that's been weaponized by the right. But then talk a little bit about the semantics of socialism. I mean, that's something that the Democrat Party has been, not all, but there are several key figures like Bernie Sanders and AOC that have been describing themselves as socialists. We had a very interesting race in Buffalo yep. where socialism- Home to the best football team in the NFL. Yeah. Oh, well, that's according to you. <laughs> um, but that was a very interesting race because socialism was literally on the ballot and it was literally the only choice on the ballot and it's still lost. Right. So let me tell you a story. I was up in Buffalo three weeks ago mm-hmm. for the Bills game. I go once a year. Mm-hmm. Longer story as to why I'm a Bills fan. And I was driving through Buffalo. And Buffalo is one of the most segregated cities in America. Mm-hmm. You know when you're in a black neighborhood or in a white neighborhood. I'm in a black neighborhood and it's all 
write down Byron Brown signs. Byron Brown is the fourth term, now about to be fifth term mayor of Buffalo, who lost in the primary yeah. to a self-described democratic socialist named India Walton. Mm -hmm. In the black neighborhood, just write down Byron Brown everywhere. Wow. Uh, then I get to the neighborhood where I was visiting a friend uh -huh. and they're, they're pretty well off. And so it's solidly upper income. And it was India Walton everywhere. Really? And I asked somebody, uh, hey, who do you think is going to win this race? And they said, India Walton. And I said, well, I saw all these Byron Brown signs in the black neighborhoods. And they're like, well, that's the developers forcing them to put those signs out. Wow. Really? So, so it's this paternalism. It's like there can only be one explanation for why uh, black and brown communities like somebody like Byron Brown or yeah. an Eric Adams. And it could only be that they're too dumb to know what's in their best interest. They that Progressives can't imagine an alternative. Yeah, that seems to be the, the progressive notion, right? That these people just don't understand socialism or they don't understand how this will benefit them. But obviously they understand it enough to reject it. And I mean, and that's what's so crazy about what happened in Buffalo. I mean, he was a write-in candidate. I mean, that's unheard yeah, of. Yeah, Murkowski is like the last time I've heard of this, mm. you know. Very unheard of for a write-in candidate to be even nearly successful let alone actually win an election. And I mean, I think too with India Walton, she's a very nice lady. She, you know, she was really trying to help her community, but at the same time, just was going up against a very experienced politician. I think in the primaries there, he didn't think of her as any kind of a threat, didn't really pay attention, you know, lost those primaries. And then he said, okay, now I got to get serious. And he came up with this write down Byron Brown campaign. What are we going to do today? which was just Amazing. a stroke of genius. Amazing. I'm jealous. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could have worked on that campaign and like, yeah. took credit for that because like he had like rubber stamps with his name on it, passing it out to union leaders, saying to their members, like use these rubber stamps to vote for Brian Brown. I mean, from a political standpoint, from like a strategic standpoint, just brilliant. And it seems like it worked. And here's, here's where the real smoke is for the Democratic Party, if not fire, mm -hmm. is that Democratic politicians were tripping over themselves to go to Buffalo to endorse India Walton. AOC, yep. Elizabeth Warren, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, Bernie. Chuck Schumer. Schumer uh, did, yeah. And so oh, that was re weird. <laughs> so when Democrats are like, Republicans are painting us as a left-leaning party and that we're extremists, but we're really not because we elected Joe Biden, people need to take note and be like, well, what are the dynamics of the party that would push so many established politicians to go uh, campaign for a self-described democratic socialist, which who I have like, like, I'm not saying that she's a bad person. I'm yeah. just saying that that she was out of step with the city of Buffalo, mm -hmm. clearly, given the results. Mm -hmm. And what is it that that is driving all these politicians, including some previous moderates like Schumer mm -hmm. and, and Gillibrand, mm -hmm. to go endorse a candidate who's so out of step with their city? I think it's just a branding thing at this point. I think the national brand of the Democratic Party wants to lean more towards socialism because they think that that's attractive for young voters and things like that. But then they don't understand when it comes to the actual people who go and vote in these elections, older African-Americans, older Latino voters, working class whites. That, that socialism brand is just not resonating. Well, and here's a thread that I think connects a lot of this, which connects Virginia, connects New Jersey, connects Buffalo, mm -hmm. is that I think Democratic Democrats are a party right now that voters don't trust with their money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah. you know, there's a property tax freeze that mm -hmm. Youngkin was was talking about. New Jersey, no, don't talk property tax with somebody in New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, you'll lose hours of your life. <laughs> uh, and then in, in Buffalo, I think a lot of people were looking and saying, you know what? Like, New York is an expensive place to live, mm -hmm. even in Buffalo. And even though I think Walton was way more nuanced than just the term socialism. Yeah, for sure. They were afraid of that. 
they don't want socialism. Yeah. It just you seems know? like that's like the, the point of this conversation. And she is a Democrat. To be clear, she's a democratic socialist. And yeah. That means different than just straight socialism. So I yeah, want to be fair sure. to her. For sure. Uh, but I think Democrats need to to talk more about how they're going to spend people's money and how they're going to like actually deliver results for people, which I think is really, and we'll talk about this in future episodes, what this Build Back Better debate is about. But we have a couple more races to go to. So Minneapolis, this was another big race that we were watching a lot last night, mainly because Minneapolis has been to the center of a lot of these conversations regarding race, regarding policing, regarding the defund police campaign. And Minneapolis, they had a, a Democratic mayor uh, running for re-election who was the mayor during the George Floyd incident. I believe he got re-elected during, I think they had a ranked choice voting He's there. leading the ranked choice mm -hmm. right now. It, it's looking pretty good for him, but it's not definitive yet. But yeah. he's ahead in the ranked choice. But there were other things happening in Minneapolis. On the ballots, didn't they have like an amendment that would have essentially abolished their police department? Well, it would have transformed it into a different department called the Department of Public Safety, I mm -hmm. think is what they would call it. But the way to look at this is there are proponents of defund the police or abolish, which Minneapolis, I think, is, you know, given the history, has... I think even more extreme viewpoints than other parts of America for obvious reasons. Yeah. So the defund slash abolish people were supporting this amendment to transform the police department. Mm -hmm. The mayor is an opponent of defund mm -hmm. and an opponent of that measure. This morning the voters have spoken and the Minneapolis Police Department will remain in place as we know it. That was one of the key issues that led to high voter turnout this year. And the measure lost, so the voters soundly rejected uh, transforming the police department into the Department of Public Safety. Uh, and they appear to be uh, re-electing the mayor. Re it's not definitive, but they appear to be re-electing him. And to me, this shows, again, like you have affluent, mostly white progressives who are out of step with the base of the party. And uh, in this case, you had polling in the lead up to this that showed that the majority of voters in Minneapolis were against defunding the police department or reducing the size of the police department. And that opposition was even stronger in the black community. So the black community was opposed to defund uh, and decreasing the size of the police department police department even more than the white community. Yeah, I mean, when we interviewed Richie Torres a couple weeks ago, you know, he talked about the fact that, you know, nobody in his community in South Bronx wanted to get rid of police or even defund the police. And that seems to be data that's consistent across the board. Black and brown communities, they want police reform. They definitely want better treatment from police, but they don't want to eliminate police or defund them because they need police in their community. They need police more than a lot of these elitist progressive white people who are pushing the defund movement. But what's interesting about Minneapolis is that there was sort of kind of a counter to it in a place like Cleveland. Uh, Cleveland had a very interesting election. Uh, they elected a new mayor, Justin Bibb, um, pretty progressive, doesn't describe himself as, as a socialist or anything like that, but pretty progressive, um, has linked himself to Obama and things like that, has talked about doing some pretty progressive movement in Cleveland. But they also had something called Issue 24 on their ballots. And Issue 24, a little different than Minneapolis, but it basically would have created or does create a civilian-run community organization that pretty much oversees the police entirely. Issue 24, it focuses on police oversight, giving the public a role in police 
police matters. And with 73% of precincts reporting, it looks like it will pass. And that amendment actually passed. So issue 24 passed by pretty big numbers. So it's almost like counter evidence to the Minneapolis case. In some ways, I mean, issue 24 was a little different from what Minneapolis was trying to do, but it definitely is very similar. And it's kind of interesting that in this city like Cleveland, which has a very high crime rate, very high poverty rate, the voters were willing to try something that was a little bit more extreme, like giving complete civilian control um, over the police department. But in a place like Minneapolis, where the policing issues have been a little bit more extreme, uh, they said, no, we're not even going to go for that even a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting to see how crime is driving these debates, because in Minneapolis, last time I checked, they have 81 homicides for the year. They had 82 in all of last year combined. And last year wasn't exactly like a banner year for safety in Minneapolis. So I think part of what's happening is the reality. And I think when voters are comparing these plans in Minneapolis, the voters were looking at a plan that they thought was really vague. They didn't trust their government to implement it. So they're like, you know what, we're going to go with what we know. Yeah. Maybe a little bit more of what we know. Is your sense that this Cleveland plan was a little bit more concrete? Yeah, it was a little bit more concrete. It was a little bit more, it was it was laid out a little differently. And basically, I think that it makes a really good argument for what Cleveland is trying to do. I mean, because the police serve these communities, shouldn't these communities have a voice in how the police operates? I mean, issue 24 gives some pretty strong uh, oversight over the police to civilians. I mean, it's, they, they have everything from uh, deciding how training sessions will go, deciding how recruitment efforts will go, all uh, all sorts of power over like the discipline for cops who have stepped out of line somehow. So it gives a lot of power to um, a civilian board in that particular case. But I mean, is that a bad thing? You know, that should should citizens have more say so over how police operate? Right. And I think there's. I would love to see some nuance here, right? When you take Cleveland and you take Minneapolis, it like some of the things that people were talking about reforming the police department, for example, in that proposition makes some sense, like more emphasis on mental health and whatnot. So I hope this doesn't mean that they close the door on reforms. Just, you know, like you and I, I think are largely aligned on the fact that public safety is important and just dramatically reducing the size of police uh, willy-nilly is not usually the answer in most cities, but that yeah. doesn't mean there are other things that we shouldn't be doing to reform these police departments. Absolutely. So, Ravi, what is your overall take, like, from all of these elections? Like, what is the takeaway for Democrats? I mean, obviously, the right is going to say just the Yunkin win alone is, like, a big blow to the Democrats. Yeah. The fact that they did so poorly in New Jersey should have been able to win that a lot easier. But then again, you know, there were a lot of Democratic victories for people like yes. Eric Adams and Justin Bibb. So what is the, the full takeaway for that? Yeah, part? you know, but it's hard to see a Democratic victory in, a, in an election where they're really going head to head with Republicans. There really weren't many. I mean, yeah, obviously New Jersey, but that that was a done deal. The fact it was that close is kind of scary. Yeah. But, you know, there's a saying tragedy requires hubris. And I'm seeing a lot of hubris on the right right now. Yeah. You know, there takes, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, no, this is a rejection of, you know, putting a boy in a dress to go into, uh, you know, bathrooms or something. And I'm she just like, that? that's that's a weird take on this election. I'm not sure that was motivating people. I, I know there was, was on the ballot. I know there was an incident in Loudoun County, but this mm. is where the this is where the right is going to stand in its own way. Is that they they have some daylight here yeah. to step out of the shadow of Trump because Yunkin, as you mentioned, like he didn't have a primary. He had a convention, so he yeah. he didn't have to kiss Trump's ass in the way that other candidates around the country in the midterms are going to have to. So he was able to to even though he had to do a bare minimum. He was able to position himself, at, at least in this Overton window that we're in right now, as a moderate. And he was able to tell a story on education. But once you start letting, you know, the less 
cogent members of the right into this story, yeah. it becomes less about a clear school choice, accountability, spending your money right uh, narrative. And then it becomes also about racism and fringe ideas. Mm -hmm. And that's where they're going to get themselves into trouble as if they learn the wrong lesson from this election. Yeah. I think for Republicans, the takeaway from Virginia is you have two different groups that are going to claim victory, right? Like they're the never Trumpers who are going to say, hey, he was able to win without Trump. So this is an example of how we can actually win and become moderates again, or at least become center right again. And then you're going to have the the Trump people who say, yeah, but Trump campaigned for him at the end. He definitely, Virtually, didn't he? Virtually, yeah. 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 Uh, you know, he definitely had to appeal to that culture war talking points when it came to critical race theory and things like that. And he definitely did mention things about election security. So they're going to say he still had to push some of what Trump has been saying yep. just to get over that line. And so there's going to be that debate as to which one really put him over. Yeah. And our audience, what I want them to look to is, for instance, the Ohio primary to see why that the dynamics of these primaries are going to be different and they're going to yield very unyunkin like candidates. So in that race you have Josh Mandel versus JD Vance and a few others yeah. and they are competing to be more maga than the next. Yeah. And to me, uh, as somebody who used to be a democratic strategist, I know the democratic strategists are high-fiving themselves at that dynamic. Yeah. They're saying that is our opening. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, you know, but that's the right. Um, the left, now their take, I'm seeing all over the internet, is that this was a rejection of moderate Democrats, meaning because Murphy was a moderate mm -hmm. and McAuliffe is a moderate, that they're saying that last night's results were a rejection of those types of candidates. But I mean, look what happened in Buffalo. I mean, right. look what happened in Minneapolis. Great. So, I mean, it's like you can say- In New York, Eric and, Adams. In New York, Eric yeah. Adams is, is pretty moderate. So, I mean, you can say, oh, this is a rejection of moderates and that, you know, these candidates need to be more progressive. But I don't think McAuliffe being more progressive would have helped them in Virginia. In fact, I feel like the fact that he was linked so heavily with the far left extremism was something that actually kind of helped that did him in. Yeah, what I would ask of those people, and, and they could send it to us, is what's your evidence that the attacks on McAuliffe and Murphy that landed- were because they were too centrist. Yeah. Where's that argument? Because I can point to many arguments that Eric Adams made or Byron Brown made or that uh, won the day in Minneapolis that were critiques of the far left of the party that seemed to have landed with the Democratic so-called base, right? Like the Democratic base, which is out of step with the affluent progressives. That, that narrative is very clear. I can give you a list of 100 examples of those three different races in which that narrative landed. Ultimately, I think this was a win for, for centrism. I mean, no really extreme candidates across the board did very well last night. So ultimately, and then there were a lot of races that were just extremely close, as many races have been in this country for the last few years. So ultimately, I think people, it really just proves that people are just more divided and more sort of kind of split on what direction they want this country to take. I wonder what the lessons are here. I'm so curious to see what the next few weeks for the Democrats looks like. Are they going to pass Build Back Better? Are they going to stop Build Back Better? You could see a narrative for either, right? You could say, yeah. all right, this was a referendum on our inability to tighten our belt, so we're not going to spend, uh, you know, pass an expansive spending program. Or I could be like, they, people want results. Yeah. So I have yeah. no idea. I honestly don't know. Yeah. I think they've put way too much time and effort in Build Back Better to kind of like, you know, get rid of it. I think they'll definitely still try. Uh, but the question is, will they have the votes? Yeah. Not well, sure. we'll see. We will see.